let's start. So uh, we had loads of people on, and that doesn't surprise me because obviously your David's reputation precedes himself, even as someone like myself who's who's not in the diabetic foot world and hasn't been for a long time. I follow you on social media. I enjoy your posts. I am fully aware of who you are, as I'm sure everyone else is. And we're delighted that you've literally just run out of theatre this morning uh, to be this. So thank you so much for your time. We, we do massively appreciate it. Um, we've had loads of questions come in from, from uh, sort of people mostly in the UK. So um, I don't think they're UK-based questions per se. Before I get cracking on those, Craig, did you want to start off with your... Well, I'll, your... I'll start with the, the question I had, and because I know that yeah. people are tuning in to hear the answer to this, but um, th- this is a tweet that you put out, David, back in April that I've actually shared with, with, a, with a, several people, specifically people involved in organising conferences, and this is obviously your annual Diabetic Foot Conference. Right. I think it's in a different, different city this year, isn't it? Uh, it's, yeah, this year it's in Houston, and then yeah. next year back in L.A. where I am right now. Yeah. So, But what surprised me about this tweet was the equal prominence given to the um, you know, attending the event and live streaming, whereas I think in previous years the live streaming has been in the small print. And I think the, the concern of a lot of conference organisers is if you live stream a conference – uh, it's going to affect attendance, but I know your conference has gone from strength to strength every year. Um, there's always concerns about what will the trade exhibitors who do spend a lot of money to exhibit at conferences uh, think about the declining attendance if live streaming takes over. But I just wonder if you comment on how how you think live streaming has affected attendances at your event. Yeah, well, that's a that's a hello, by the way, to uh, both of you, uh, Ian and Craig, uh, and uh, and uh, the greetings from Los Angeles, uh, and uh, the the Keck School of Medicine of uh, University of Southern California. But uh, I um, so to answer that, uh, it's something that I think about um, a lot because, of course, you know, no one wants to have a meeting where no one shows up, of course. But you know, I must say that that has not been our experience that that giving prominence. Uh, to uh, uh, the, uh, the online aspect of things has done nothing but, I think, increase awareness about the symposium. And, uh, you know, in the last several years, we've had our servers uh, uh, constantly have to be uh, uh, upgraded for the event and the, uh, the estimates for these. Uh, uh, two years, three years ago, uh, there was a crash on the servers because there was so much attendance online. Mm-hmm. Now, would a, uh, would a symposium uh, organizer uh, that was, you know, dealing with, folks who are exhibiting, uh, you know, rather have those people live? Yes, but, but frankly, our goal is not that. Our goal is to get the word out um, and, to, uh, and to try to get the, the best possible folks from around the world together to try to talk at, to and convene about a problem. And what we've seen is we've seen steadily rising attendance, uh, both real and virtual. And you know what? what is virtual anymore and what is real? I, I think it's all bleeding together. You know, we have people sending in questions uh, to uh, Joe Mills, my, my, my flow amigo and partner in the meeting or me when I'm on the podium and they're texting me and, and then I, or, or, or they're actually just, you know, live tweeting questions and it's really, really interactive. And, and Craig, again, to make a short story long, it's just fun. It's more fun that way anyway. Yeah, no, I think that that's the, the impression I've always got from what I've seen is that tendencies seem to go up after the year after the live stream because people, yeah. I want to be a part of this. Yeah, that's I, that's yeah. the other thing. I think a lot of people say that. A lot of people say, hey, yeah. you know, I was in, I was, uh, I was watching from my uh, pajamas in Kuala Lumpur last year. Uh, this year, 
while I still love my pajamas, uh, I would rather uh, watch it live in the U.S. So uh, yeah. you know, and so that's that's kind of what we what we've seen. Yeah, but I also think the the interaction on Facebook and Twitter during a conference generates buzz about the event. Oh, no and, doubt about it, and, and increases attendance at the at the live stream. But next year, you you get the benefit at the local attendances. So yeah. Yep, you got it. You got it, Craig. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So what what have you got there, Ian, for a question? <laughs> so uh, first off, is is someone being um, professionally nosy, if, if if you don't mind, and and what they'd like to know is when you're not travelling the world, when you're not lecturing, what does a normal what does a normal uh, clinic day or clinic week look like for you? Yeah. Oh well, well, this is a perfect time. This is a normal clinic week. Uh, so I was, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here all week. Um, but, uh, on, uh, on Monday, um, I was, um, we had our research meetings in the morning, which is awesome. And we had, you know, we had 39 different research projects going on. I have it in my little, my little, my little office here. And, you know, sometimes we spill over into our conference room. So we have our team and it's super interdisciplinary and it's a lot of fun. And we're dealing with everything from, from, uh, you know, spray on skin to, social genomics of wound healing and all these cool studies going on. I mean, it's just, and then to, to wearable robots and all this. And so that's our research meeting uh, for a really tight uh, hour in the morning. I'll also take some phone calls real quick. Then I rush over to uh, one of our clinics at Rancho Los Amigos uh, National Rehabilitation Center, uh, which is uh, uh, here in Los Angeles, one of the clinics that we attend. It's a very famous one in diabetic footland because that's where uh, Bill Wagner got his start, uh, the famous uh, surgeon who uh, did a lot of work in, uh, in the diabetic foot. And now we're helping to, to take care of folks there. And then I spend the rest of the day there. Tuesday, we have kind of this conjoined uh, uh, rounds, both between podiatric and vascular surgery. So we have a giant team that meets on the wards and we do ward rounds together. And it's, uh, it's like a big movable feast. Uh, and that takes uh, maybe about an hour, an hour and a half. And from there, I go to our salsa clinic, which is right across the way here. I can see it on the beautiful sixth floor of this building next to me. Uh, and I have clinic all day. And there's people of all means, shapes and sizes, people flying in for care, but people that are, are local as well. And uh, in the evening, we often have a, a, every other week, we have a salsa uh, meeting, which is a combined uh, interdisciplinary meeting. We're only on Tuesday, and So here we go. So moving on to Wednesday, Wednesday is my operating theater, you might say, um, uh, all day. Uh, and uh, so I just literally got out of the OR and I got changed. You like this? I, by the way, I, I just for, you know, not too much information, but I, I did actually get, you know, my pants are on. I got my shoes on <laughs> everything. So, uh, so I, I did manage to get changed, but I was in the, in the theater with everything you know, on my cap just minutes before uh, when I called you guys. Let me just put this in the drawer here. Pardon me. Um, uh, while we're chatting, I don't want to have a dirty office. Uh, so uh, my mother would slap me Wednesday in the theater. Uh, and then on Thursday, we have uh, our academic conference in the morning on vascular. And sometimes on those days, we have something that's called the Innovators Lecture Series, which is really cool because we have people from, usually it's all over the academy, all over, our, uh, the, uh, all over USC. There are so many brilliant people. Uh, on this campus, you know, Nobel this, Lasker that, you know, uh, you know, MacArthur genius this. And so we usually have these folks that are doing really interesting things. And it could be in anything from, you know, astronomy to, you know, uh, neurosurgery to brain computer interfaces. And we have them in 
to give us a tight half hour on what makes them excited. Uh, and then we, of course, will present patients and other things like that during this academic conference. Uh, and then uh, after that, I have clinic in the afternoon. Friday is, uh, is uh, some uh, admin work in the operating room. Uh, then on the weekend, really, who knows? Uh, it's, uh, if, if, I'm, uh, if I'm home, it's usually with, uh, with my girls. And I have, uh, uh, I'm completely emasculated at home with uh, uh, Tanya, my much, much, much better half, long-suffering, much better half, and then my three daughters, uh, Alexandria, Natalie, Nina, and uh, then Chloe 2.0. And, and, and Alexandra's following in your footsteps. Can you believe that? Yeah. Now, she has not, I'll just tell you, I mean, she has not formally applied anywhere yet, but she did come up to us several weeks ago. As you know, Craig, yeah. uh, you spilled the beans and said, uh, Mommy, <laughs> Daddy, I want to do what, uh, what Grandpa and what you did, Daddy. And so that was awesome. And we, we had never expected it, yeah. but, uh, yeah, that's our oldest. Yeah. Our middle one is, is on, en route to Iceland this, uh, this weekend, uh, and then, then Greenland. She wants to save the world. Uh, build the new green economy and our little one uh wants to go into public policy and she'll probably be starting the university in another year so that's all three and the dog well she's you know that's Chloe, Chloe 2.0 yeah, yeah. yeah. that's awesome so you're you mentioned salsa and that that's an acronym yeah. for it's your, your limb salvage unit can you just remind me what that stands for yeah it stands for well it used to be when i was in arizona It was the Southern Arizona Limb Salvage Alliance. Now it has uh, uh, transmortified to, uh, uh, to the uh, Southwestern Academic uh, Limb Salvage Alliance. But it really, while it is, there is a geography attached to it, it really is, you know, we try to have no borders. We have, uh, you know, colleagues from, you know, a couple dozen countries at any given time that are participating in this alliance. And that's what, we use the word alliance rather than center or institute because we think it's a lot uh, I don't know. It's not, not so hubristic. It's a little more humble and it's a little more like this and a little less like this, you know, a little, uh, if, if you will, if I may uh, gesticulate uh, on my iPhone X, <laughs> by the way, I'm running, uh, I'm running the 12 uh, beta six. So if it goes out, I come, I'm going to blame the beta testing, uh, not, uh, uh, not zoom. By the way, Zoom works great. I'm glad you guys are using Zoom. Good for you. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, that's a shows you a bit. That's a, that's a, a good. <laughs> yeah, a good uh, yeah, I was like an alpha tester with them. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, so that's that's salsa or salsa, as you might say. <laughs> sa sa sorry, salsa. Yeah, yeah salsa. Um, so people in clinic, it's reasonable to assume they're not in a good way. You're, you're not doing. You're, you're not educating the newly diagnosed. The kind of stuff that we would probably do within our health service. If people are seeing you, things aren't going well. Is that a reasonable assumption? Well, I think we have a lot of work to do. I, I think if you look, if you were to look, um, and uh, I promise to try to fully answer your question, but if you look at the gestalt of the whole thing, that's a German word, uh, Craig, gestalt. Um, and uh, I, 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 uh, and uh, I, uh, Ian, I know you knew that already. I'm just trying to help. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll pepper this. With, uh, with periodic things like gestalt, milieu, to do the French, and you know, other things like that. Um, but but uh, the, if you're to look at the gestalt of, of you know, the, uh, the problem all over the world, the good news right now is that for um, amputation prevention, um, even while we're seeing diabetes rise in many nations, uh, even as uh, we are seeing a drop in high-level amputations in many countries, not in all, 
but in many countries, particularly the developing countries, um, the in develop, I, I should say in developed countries, in developing countries, amputations are still on the rise. The disturbing part is that we seem to be, with the best data that we have, seem to be seeing a rise in the rate of ulcers. So, uh, so it looks like now it would be the equivalent of, you know, more people, um, fewer people are dying from cancer, but more people are getting cancer. So it's, it's a blessing uh, and a curse. I think more blessing than curse, but still what's happening is, is that the, the uh, people are living longer. They're living longer with more of these complications. Um, and we're having to deal with these things and to do as good a job as we can. So the good news is it looks like we may be uh, reducing amputations nationwide in, uh, the, uh, in uh, whether it be in the, uh, the UK, the, uh, the rest of the EU, or the EU, depending on whether you're from the north or the south of the UK, where you are on Brexit, uh, or, uh, or whether you're in Australasia or wherever you are. Uh, the, the thing is, that, uh, it looks like we're seeing something of a drop there in amputations right now. We may be wrong, though. And the reason we may be wrong, and sorry to go off on this weird soliloquy, Ian, but you can cut me off whenever you want. Uh, <laughs> never, but, uh, never. Uh, the, yes, no, it's going to be. Uh, the, but but uh, the thing is that uh, uh, what we're seeing is, it, what we may be seeing is we may actually be seeing, um, because maybe 20 years ago and then again about 15 years ago, we sort of modified how we, how we defined diabetes worldwide. So we may have increased the number of people with diabetes. So we may have increased the denominator. And those people now are getting older with some of these complications of diabetes. And so we may now be seeing some of those people start to get these complications. So we may see a rise in amputation if that theory proves true. So we don't know whether uh, we should, it's a day at the beach, as we say, or a calm before the next big wave. Yeah, actually, that, that, actually, that's a good point. It's, you know, incidence versus prevalence and those kinds of issues. So, yeah, it's um, calm before the storm. I mean, right. the, 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 stat, the stat that I read in uh, my brief research, uh, David, was that there's somewhere in the ballpark of 425 million people with diabetes yeah, minimum. in the world, which, which, yeah. which is the third biggest population of people after only China and India, um, Yeah, which is which is pretty crazy when you think about it. It is. It is. It's as, 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 uh, as, as you and I, uh, Ian, were discussing in the seconds before we went live on Facebook, uh, the, uh, the, the, it's, there are more people with diabetes than there are people, people in the United States. I mean, this is extraordinary. I mean, it's just, and then if you add in, uh, Ian, people with uh, what's called pre-diabetes or, you know, impaired glucose homeostasis. Uh, if you want to get fancy, uh, you can use that term. At a cocktail hour, just say impaired glucose homeostasis and walk away and people will say, whoa, ah, dang. I knew that guy Ian was smart with the 17 minutes thing. But man, now, you might as well just drop the mic. But, uh, but if we're talking about impaired glucose, if we're talking about pre-diabetes, if you will, um, there are... It's it's twice as many folks. It's it, right now in the United States there are, uh, um, I believe now more than a hundred million people with diabetes or pre-diabetes. So uh, 
uh, that's just in the U.S. So it's really quite extraordinary. And and you add up other nations, like uh, obviously if you were to go anywhere in the EU or Asia uh, and uh, South Asia, Australasia, it's just the problem continues to to increase. Um. Another stat. I, I like my stats. I must confess, and uh, I'm pretty. I think this is reasonably accurate. Is that fifty percent of any of, of, of any and all diabetics are, are undiagnosed? Is that? Am I, am yeah, I mis, yeah. Uh, it, interpreted it that. That's a, so. No, I don't know that you've misinterpreted it at all, uh, Ian. Uh, far be it from you to misinterpret it. Uh, but the, there are depending on depending on what country you go to, depending on. Um, and, and what region you are, uh, you're in, uh, you know, screening for diabetes, uh, you know, may be done very well in a public health sense or not well at all. And that number that you see is often bandied about. Sometimes it's up to half of people and just double number of people may not, may not even know that they have diabetes. If you want to be super conservative, you can say it's a third or so in some places, but it's, it's just terrible. Far too many people that have diabetes don't even know. Uh, they have it. Uh, it. It used to be in the United States uh, that uh, I think it's far better than it was in the 90s, you know, especially the early 90s when I got started uh, with all of this. Uh, you know, sometimes we walk into the emergency department or A&E, Ian, uh, and, uh, and we'd, uh, <laughs> yeah. we'd see a page. There you are. Two people separated by a common language, Greg. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, but but. Uh, you'd walk into A&E or our emergency department and we'd see a patient um, and we'd say, Miss Garcia, it's really good to meet you. Uh, you uh, have uh, this limb threatening problem we've just identified. It's, we're going to try to keep you alive and keep your leg on. I know you're in sepsis. And oh, by the way, you have diabetes. <laughs> so we were, uh, we were diagnosing um, actually, I think a paper we wrote, we, we, we couldn't believe it, um, of something like between 15 and 17% of the people we were seeing at that time in the emergency department, we were diagnosing with diabetes at the time they were going into the operating room, into theater, if you will, for, for a debridement, for, for an urgent or emergency uh, debridement to try to keep their leg on their body or their foot on. So that has improved, we think, over the years, as has hemoglobin A1C and things like that. But it's still, there's still far too many people uh, that have diabetes that don't know they have it. Yeah. And that's it, silent and it's sinister. Yeah, I seem to recall a very old paper out of the UK that I think something like 10 to 15% of those undergoing an amputation were having the diabetes diagnosed at that time. Which, well, yeah. Which just go. means services yeah. weren't getting to them. And we've actually just had a question come in, and I'll just extend that question another demographic shift in, on all this is that more and more that they say the mean age of those with type 2 is declining more and more people in the 20 to 30s are, are turning up with foot complications from diabetes um oh yeah which is a, uh, look <laughs> yeah look welcome hey craig welcome to my world man uh, so so here's what we're seeing um and we've been seeing this for some time uh when i was in arizona for you know more than a decade uh uh, both tours uh, in Arizona, as it were, we um, we started noticing this sort of, if it were, if you will, if you want to get all kind of wonky and statistical, we were seeing like this kind of bimodal hump, two humps in age, like a two hump dromedary statistically. Is that even a thing? Uh, there, there you go. 
I'm just trying to make you laugh, Greg. It's not even working. Okay, so so but we're at, I'm, I'm making you up about a not funny thing. But we saw folks, of course, older getting older with diabetes, which is good. It's better than the alternative. Um, and so the 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 age of, uh, of all these people with diabetes was older getting older. Then we saw uh, younger getting young. You know, we saw this hump of younger people getting younger being admitted for these complications. And, and now, and, and so, whereas we used to, in the 90s, maybe even before that, we saw one sort of hump with the mean age at like, uh, like you know, 55, it used to be 55 plus or minus 10 years, and now we have these other two. So, yes, we, uh, I just had someone uh, in, uh, uh, in theater, if you will, this morning uh, and that was uh, um, in uh, um, in her for early 40s, um, I had uh, who had, and she was uh, blind with end stage renal disease, and um, she has a, a complication. We were just uh, reconstructing her foot. Uh, we had just kind of skin graft, and we were just revising a transmetatarsal amputation on her foot. That's 40 years old, but we regularly see people uh, in their um, their late 20s and 30s now with complications like this, and even more when we were in Arizona where we saw a lot of Native American patients uh, where we used to be uh, in, uh, um, in, in Arizona, we were in Pima County where uh, seven zero seventy percent 70% of the Tohono O'odham nation uh, had, that was this, uh, uh, this tribe, if you will, the Tohono O'odham nation had diabetes, an amazing number. And uh, we're seeing this, all over the United States. And it's true amongst first nations, peoples all over the world. You know, of yeah. course, uh, it, uh, if, if, if you're, it's absolutely true uh, in Melbourne as well and across mm. Australia and we see it in Canada, we see it all over. Yeah, no, it's very, very common. Oops, we just lost your picture there, Dave. Oh, okay, oh, there you go. I was just getting called. I was literally just getting called from the operating room. So there you go. They may call back in a second too, but uh, hopefully. <laughs> do, do, they, do, they need why, uh, do they need you, David? Don't, don't, no, don't uh, keep you. Hey, if, it, if, it ha if it happens, I, I got the phone here. I don't have, I don't have it on my computer. Uh, so I, so if it, just I don't take, know what's that. They'll try to call me on the landline. Does anyone even use a landline anymore? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, Trevor Pryor, David, just made a comment on the chat um, about yeah. Yeah. Trevor, hello, Trevor. <laughs> so, so he said we've seemed to have more or less nailed the amputations in the neuropath, but still struggle with the the PAD ones, which yeah. seems to be an issue. Yeah, yeah. So that's a a a, a, a terrific uh, uh, that's a terrific question from uh, a really a, dare I say it an extremely clever. Uh, a, a guy and uh, Trevor Pryor. I'm all, I'm uh, I'm struggling to say that. I want to say something else uh, <laughs> worldwide, but he is just he is he's as good as it gets for sure. Um, uh, but he also gives as good as he gets. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but Trevor is. Uh, by the way, you know who it was that just called? I just got the text. It was the operating room front desk. So maybe Trevor can call over there for me since he asked this question. <laughs> Remind me to call the operating room front desk after the chat. <laughs> uh, they, they can't get started without them. Actually, I, I will call. Uh, but uh, but the uh, actually, I hope that my fellow gets it, and I think he will. Um, but but the, uh, the the this is true. What Trevor says 
is that it used to be that most of the people that we treated in the developing world, or excuse me, in the developed world, were uh, neuropaths, and, um, and and we could treat them, um, and uh, and most of these folks had enough blood flow uh, to heal them. Maybe only 15% prevalence of PAD, peripheral artery disease, in the 1990s. Now the prevalence of PAD in many parts of the world, including in the UK, including in in Australia, including in uh, the U.S., is approaching 50%, if not more, in many places. Which is why um, I have uh, and we have, you know, tried to develop units like we have, where and the model that we have here is uh, kind of a model that's been adapted in many places around the world based on successes, thankfully, that we've had in places that have taken what we've done and made it even better. And the model that we have that we've, we've nicknamed it the toe and flow model, where you have a toe doctor like me, um, and then you have my, a, a, a flow doctor. There we go. That's, uh, that's, that, that actually was the pharmacy. Calling. It must be about a dose of a drug. That definitely can <laughs> I'm giving you guys the play by play. So that's, that's two um, calls. But uh, the, finished. Yeah, that's a, that's a, the, the, uh, you know, both, but I'm I'm giving everyone the lay of the land without violating confidentiality. I'm you know walking that line, uh, of course. Uh, that, but because uh, I because I know my those the folks I would share it with would love to share. Um, but anyway, the point the point uh, uh, the point to Trevor is now. That's why these teams like tow and flow, this tow and flow model are so important and the results have been so terrific. Example, um, right now, uh, one of our team is operating um, with, uh, with our whole, with uh, uh, Tanzim Khan is, is operating with, uh, he's our uh, podiatric fellow, our podiatric surgical fellow is operating right with uh, Neil Reddy, who's our vascular surgery fellow and another attending uh, surgeon and vascular surgery uh, on a patient as we speak, and uh, one is doing the 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 flow work to bring the flow down, and the other is doing the landscaping, if you will, on the foot or on the wound to try to get the thing healed, to try to uh, debride it or reconstruct it, and that kind of combined uh, uh, work and combined anesthesia, or the, but really it's the combined care and curbside consultations that are happening in real time that really make the big difference. Mm. Yeah, no, it's. Hang on, just uh, gonna... oh, there's been so many questions coming in. I've struggled. I've been struggling to keep up. With yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll be. I'll be like. Uh, I'll. I'll, uh, I'll. I'll be more quiet, and then, or I could answer the no, phone, and we don't. could like just listen to me. No, okay. no, don't. This is this, this episode. This is about you. This isn't about us. This is about you. This is about you. <laughs> oh God! God forbid. <laughs> I want to clear off. I want to clear these things off the list first. Um, you, uh, when I was doing some research, uh, because I've been out of the diabetic world for so long, I came across your website, diabeticfootonline.com. Craig, yeah. Can you, can you I, I will in a moment, yep. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to make everyone aware of this if they're, if they're not aware of it already, because some of the, the facts and figures that I've been enjoying uh, repeating, are, you, you put there on there as infographics, which I think are really, I'm a big fan of infographics anyway, I think they're an incredible way to, to translate difficult uh, research and numbers. There's a couple on there that I just wanted to mention and have you talk around if that's okay, because they were just utterly startling to me. Oh, I think Craig's showing it now. Um, so it's the, it's, the, uh, it's the facts and figures section, Craig, um, wherever that is. But yeah, um, the one that I've, I've, I've heard you speak of before, David, is that um, 
across the world, there's an amputation that occurs every 20 seconds. But the, yeah. one that I was not, the one that I was not aware of was that worldwide, someone dies via complications or, or linked with diabetes every seven seconds. Yeah. Do, you mind, uh, yeah. do you mind talking a bit around that? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. I, so, so yeah, you're happy to talk about that. So, so the, well, I'm not, I'm not certainly not happy to talk about the, 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 uh, uh, it, it's a terrible problem, but I'm happy to speak to it. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is right now, and, and by the way, regarding the blog and, and, and all this stuff, we put it up there and you guys, I mean, everyone is just, you know, we have lectures up there and we always share all of our stuff and our lectures and you guys are so welcome, everyone, just to copy it, like just share it, make it better and pay it forward. That's what we ask. So uh, that includes all of that stuff. And you're absolutely welcome to that or on Twitter feed or LinkedIn or the Facebook uh, uh, page, et cetera. It's, you're so welcome. That's what it's all about. But the seven seconds thing. So to that end, um, it's terrible. Um, but if we were to look at um, right now, um, around the world now, uh, uh, more people, uh, I'll, let me expand it even further than just diabetes. So, uh, in 2009, that was the first year that more folks around the world, more people died from non-communicable diseases, NCDs, than from all the all the plagues in the world combined. That, that's a big deal. So 2009 was a banner year, and it's only gotten more significant. So people are still too many people are dying from communicable diseases, of course. And you know you can you can name them Ebola, you know chikungunya malaria, typhus, you just, you just name it. I mean, all over the place, all over the, uh, all over the world. But, and of course, HIV AIDS, um, but 2009 was a banner year that more people started dying of these NCDs. And that is going to inform everything about how we take care of uh, people, how we take care of ourselves, how we, how we build budgets for health ministries and countries for the rest of our lives. And, and, frankly, for, uh, for the foreseeable future for humanity. The big three non-communicable diseases uh, include heart disease, or just let's just say cardiovascular disease, cancer, and diabetes. And if you want to add a fourth in, just to add four, uh, and, uh, then, you might add, uh, then you might add also a, a pulmonary disease. And, uh, and so those are, those are what are uh, killing people now every day, even more than these communicable diseases. Diabetes, every seven seconds, yes. That's what's happening. And by the way, before you start saying that these people, that this is a disease of wealthy people, or these non-communicable diseases are diseases of the wealthy, let's understand that four out of five of those deaths uh, occurred in developing countries, not in developed countries. So it's this, these problems are terrible, and they do affect uh, you know, wealthier countries, but it's pretty equal opportunity sinister. Mm. Yeah, it's terrifying. Uh, what, just a follow-up to that. So we've talked about 425 million people worldwide. You know, we've got yeah. China, India, China, India, diabetes, the big three populations at the top three in the world. We've talked yeah. about how many people are undiagnosed, amputations every 20 seconds, someone dying every seven seconds. Like, yep. We'll get into the more the sort of foot-based stuff in a minute, and, and obviously I don't want to talk about ulcerations. But what what should we be doing differently as podiatrists? What can we do differently or better to to to, to contribute in some positive way to all these numbers? 
Uh, so what we need to do uh, uh, to, uh, the, 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 I think, is to do what we're doing, is to talk about this. Uh, and, um, and the more we communicate this problem, the more the less that it stays silent. And, and um, you know, uh, uh, like I said, if, if you were, uh, uh, th- these are silent and sinister. I mean, if you were an evil deity and you were uh, trying to stock it to humanity, you wouldn't pick uh, something like a heart attack. You wouldn't pick uh, something like breast cancer and those two are two horrible things, but you wouldn't pick those. Uh, you wouldn't pick even, you wouldn't even pick a terrible, horrible disease like HIV AIDS. You would pick something like diabetes because it's quiet and it, it does all of these things silently and people can have silent heart attacks. They can have silent foot attacks. And then when they have these problems, the problem is often attributed to some other problem. So we, in this area, in medicine, surgery, uh, and in public policy, really just need to constantly be beating the drum for this, like we're doing right now. Um, and until we come together like this in, in our specialty, you know, in uh, podiatric uh, medicine surgery, and, uh, but also it could as well be in, in plastic surgery, in vascular surgery, in physical medicine, rehabilitation, orthopedics, infectious disease, and in nursing, physio or physical therapy, any of these myriad specialties uh, or diabetology, we have to be rallying around that message. And that's what it takes. It's talking to our patients, talking to health plans and administrators, talking to uh, uh, talking within the UK to NHS, uh, and even to people who are heading up PCTs, and, uh, and to really just constantly be flying the flag. Yeah. I think this this is a public health issue and all health professionals should be active in public health issues. I mean, concussion in sports, a public health issue. All those involved in sports should be active in, in public health issues. And it's no different. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. I mean, that's uh, from your mouth to God's ears, man. I, mean, yeah. I, I, Greg, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, last question. And then we, we better dive into the list of Facebook questions. Um, we know that the, well, I say we, I only know this because I read it on your website. You know, I now know as a secondary to that, that the lifetime risk of developing an ulcer if you're diabetic is, is around 30, I think it's 34%. Um, I believe I'm right in saying the biggest, the biggest sort of reason for that is the, the neuropathic insensate foot. And yes. I've got to ask because just a couple, couple of hours ago on one of our UK production forums, there was a student, uh, Cheryl, not sure if she's listening now, but hi Cheryl if you are. And she was asking a question about the, the sort of gold standard uh, at the clinical level, the coalface level for assessing um, or trying to indicate if there was any presence of, of, of peripheral neuropathy. And her, yeah. her, her main comment was tuning fork, 10 gram, 10 gram monofilament. Uh, I believe that a lot of us were taught, let's use both these things. A lot of the literature she was looking at was only saying, use a monofilament. I mean, she wants to write a, uh, an art assignment and she's going to listen, hopefully, and incite a personal communication with you as, as well as the expert. What's your take on, on clinical level uh, assessment in this regard? Yeah, well, look, that's a great question. And it's a question that, um, that was a big focus of ours for years and years. Uh, obviously, you know, we, we published a lot on that a long time ago now, uh, uh, back in the 90s and 2000s. And, and uh, it, it hasn't changed. I mean, this is still really, really important. Obviously, the loss of feeling, neuropathy is the, 
is the kind of bete noir of what we're dealing with. That's French, by the way, Craig, bete noir. Uh, but but uh, uh, but it's 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 the it's it's the, it's the entree again, French to uh, to to everything that's bad in the diabetic foot. So I would uh, uh, so how to how to measure it? And and I was I used to be really kind of fastidious uh, about this. We were asking how many. How do you use the 10 gram monofilament? How many sites? We used to say, uh, we, we wrote a paper in Archives of Internal Medicine, I think in 98, where we showed that the optimal combination of sensitivity and specificity to draw out a, a receiver operating curve for you, this is a, a rock curve, uh, was uh, about was, was four or more imperceptible sites. We also looked at the uh, biothesiometer or neurothesiometer, as you might say in the UK, uh, that was over uh, a certain amount of microns. So it was measured in volts. We then combined those two and found the combination to be even more, either more sensitive or more specific. But then we started to see, you know, then we started to ask, well, what if you didn't have either of these? Um, what if you just had your hand? Uh, and, uh, and so guys like uh, uh, one of our good friends, Jerry Raymond, who's an Ipswich, uh, in, in, uh, right outside of Cambridge, who's extraordinarily clever and has made an enormous difference, um, and, uh, d- uh, in, uh, in reducing amputations in that part of the world and around the world, developed something called the Ipswich touch test, which is nothing more. And if you go into our blog, you can see it. it, it there's a picture of, of, of Jerry. Um, I think Anne, his long suffering wife, is, uh, is, uh, probably videotaping it. It's a great video. But he's just touching the patient without gloves, by the way. I think, but uh, but uh, the and uh, and he's just it literally just put a little bit of force on there, and you say, uh, Mrs. Jones, just say just say where I'm touching you. Um, and if they cannot do that on a couple of sites, then that appears to be a collinear for a dive, uh, and and probably as accurate um, as a or, or for all pragmatic purposes about as accurate as a Semmes-Weinstein or a vibration perception threshold. So when we're giving people advice that don't have a lot of gadgetry, we just tell them that your nearest uh, uh, test uh, is, is at hand, as they say. Oh, look at you. God dang, that's great. There he is, Jerry Raymond. Um, and straight out of Ipswich. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that's, I would, uh, I, would, I would refer you to that. That's really, really simple. But if you do have a, a Semmes-Weinstein or a biothesiometer, of course, those can be done very, very quickly. And, I, and also there are these devices that you can put in your pocket um, that I think were developed in Bristol, if I'm not mistaken, the little, uh, um, they're called, uh, I think, Vibratips. Is that what they're called? Do you guys know those? They're, they're, you, you, you click on them and they, they buzz at the same, uh, 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 basically the same amplitude or at the same frequency as the, uh, Sam's Weinstein at 25 volts or microns, and then you can say, ask the patient yes, no, or just to tell you when they feel it. And that's super accurate and fast too. So there are various ways like this to measure it um, at, in a rapid, pragmatic way. I'm sorry to go off on this long tangent on that, but it's a great question. Yeah, I think in a busy clinic, you've got to prioritize your, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you, you sure do. And yeah, and by the way, if someone already shows up with a wound, then I don't even think you need to do the test because obviously someone has already lost sensation. So that's uh, uh, and so which is why we don't include things like neuropathy uh, really in, uh, in in most wound you know, classification systems and things because if some uh, 
uh, in many moon classifications. Of course, risk classifications are a different thing. Actually, just on wound classification, we did have a question come in. Can you see it there, Ian? There was a – oh, here we go. Samantha asked, if there was to be an international agreed ulcer classification system, which system would you choose since she's questioned the Wi-Fi system? Yeah. So, so, uh, so you know that – so I, I, uh, I actually now – I think I told you early on when Ian asked me, uh, you know, I attend uh, um, Bill Wagner's old – old clinic now i'm, I'm helping uh, uh to run clinic uh, clinics there uh in for diabetic foot um but uh uh so the wagner system i think uh had its day but it, it doesn't it kind of loses out in in uh, uh in in its higher grades like four and five it's it's not as predictive the ut system is great because it, it it includes things like infection and ischemia in every grade where Wagner doesn't necessarily do that. So that so UT was just building on the Wagner system. It took the good parts of Wagner and then built, and then you just said you can either be infected, ischemic, or both of those. So that's those were both wound systems. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you had uh, co-evolving with those wound systems. You had our, our Flomigos on the vascular surgery side developing uh, ischemia classification systems or, or classifications like like the uh, uh, the uh, task system, the transatlantic society system, which is more of a system looking at lesions on, a, on an angio, uh, a system called Fontaine, which was developed in you know the 50s and 60s, a system called Rutherford, of course, named after the great Rutherford, which uh, uh, is used widely there. But that focuses not so much on wounds, but focuses like a laser on, on peripheral ischemia, we thought, just like Trevor was asking, you know, we've, we're starting to see a lot more neuroischemic things. Why don't we take like a rhesus peanut butter cup, if that's a thing around the world, why don't we make two great tastes taste great together and mash these things up? And instead of creating a wound system, and instead of creating an ischemia system and an infection system, we create, we marry all those things, and we create really what is not a wound system, uh, but really, and not an ischemia system, but really a threatened limb system. And uh, that sounds like sort of a, uh, a, 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 a where we're really dancing around, uh, uh, you know, semantics, but it's important to note this is not a wound system. It contains a grade of wounds. It contains, uh, uh, if you're looking at the wound, that's, it's none mild, moderate, severe for the infection. It's none mild, moderate, severe. That's the same as the, Infectious Disease Society of America system, and then for ischemia, uh, or uh, it's none mild, moderate, severe. So that's Wi-Fi. Those are your Wi-Fi settings, if you will. Wound, infection, or excuse me, wound, ischemia, foot infection. And all of those can be assessed uh, independently and then mashed up together because they're all dancing around each other and they're changing all the time. So that's the, that's the system that we like to use because it gives us an idea of limb threat, not just of a wound, not just of an infection, not just of a, a ischemia. That makes sense. Um, Samantha asked that question. She also asked another question here about the, the why are so many clinicians not using the gold standard of total contact casting? Now, I think yeah. total contact casting has probably been called the gold standard for 
20 something years now but even more than that is is would you still consider it the gold standard given what we know about the how effective some of the irremovable sort of you know yeah 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 that thanks again great question so there has been a small so there back in 2009 uh, we had a paper it was led by uh, stephanie Wu and jeff jensen we posted this paper where we looked at, I can't believe I'm saying way back in 2009. Can you believe that? <laughs> what the heck, man? Uh, so back in 2009, <laughs> I, uh, the, in the aughts, uh, we, uh, we, um, we had this paper uh, where we looked at about, about 900 centers throughout the United States uh, or just throughout North America that were uh, diabetic foot specialty units, asking them what, what they used to offload the foot as their primary means of offloading. It was really surprising. It was terrible. We found that fewer, I think you guys might know the, the punchline here, but fewer than 2% used the total contact cast as their, as their gold standard uh, or as their primary means of offloading. So the gold standard clearly wasn't very golden. <laughs> uh, a couple of years later after that, there was some good work done uh, in Australia that showed at fewer centers, but probably just really kind of very kind of high-end diabetic foot centers. Maybe it was about 15%. 14 15 percent um and uh, uh and then uh, and it's probably better now than it was then it seems to be getting slowly better um as you know um we proposed back in the early 2000s um when we you know we noticed for many years even at that time that people were not using total contact casts even though it's the best possible device um and uh, and there are devices that offload about as well in the lab, but they don't seem to heal people as well. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because people are removing their devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that in some of the early wearable studies that we did way before they were called wearables. And when the wearables cost about five grand a piece for these things, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Uh, but but we, uh, we found that people weren't wearing their device. They were only wearing their device, their removable device for about, 28% of the total activity on average that they took each day. So, uh, so we said, well, people aren't using the TCC, but you have this device that works as well in the lab as a TCC for offloading, but people, uh, but it doesn't seem to work as well in real life. Why? Because people are removing it, uh, this removable device. So why don't we, Craig, Ian, make this removable device irremovable, enter what we used to call and what we still call the instant total contact cast or the ITCC. And we used to just wrap a, a removable boot, you know, the, the uh, removable cast boot, removable cast walkers with, uh, with a layer of Coban, also known as cohesive bandage or plaster, um, and uh, like plaster of Paris, that is. Um, and, uh, and, and what we found was that seemed to behave about as well as a total contact cast. There's some debate about that now, but but the data as it exists has suggested that. I'm sorry to make this short story long, but I wanted to give you that prequel because you were you were mentioning that now some of the guidelines uh, that came out four years ago, three and a half years ago, um, uh, that we helped write um, uh, you know through the international working group led by Seco Bus and others seem to suggest that maybe now we can just do something that's irremovable rather than just the TCC being the gold standard. Maybe the gold standard is something that's less easily removable. Although I still believe that the TCC is 
is the gold standard and it's still my favorite to use. And I use it very frequently in clinic. I also know that sometimes it's not practical, um, but we try to use it as much as we can in our clinic. And we are really, really aggressive about it. But sometimes we'll take devices that are like little sandals and we'll make them removable or we'll take a, uh, uh, we'll take a, another device like a, a, a removable cast boot and make it irremovable. Yeah. How's that? No, it's, it makes sense. One of the many, say, alleged mechanisms by which a total contact cast works is uh, DEMA reduction. Yeah. You may not actually get with some of the... Uh, yeah, you're right. You are absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. So I, I touche. And I, yeah. and I agree. There's, there are so many things about a TCC that I like uh, and, and, and that I prefer. That's one of them. Uh, nothing gets rid of edema as well as that. Yeah. Um, then we've had another question come in from Kylie Williams, who was actually our second guest we had on Podchat Live, David. Um, and, and her expertise is in pediatrics, but uh, awesome. she, I know she is working on a couple of diabetes projects. She's probably listening. Um, but she's just said here, what's the one thing a podiatrist could do or say at the first consult for long-term engagement with healthcare and motivation to self-care? Like, well, I what, think, like, uh, what strategies I, do you use, use to engage them and motivate them is probably the, the more broader yeah, question. I, I, uh, so I, so here, here's what it is. I, um, let's talk about at different times. So at first, uh, I, I tell folks that uh, if they don't have any complications, it depends on where they are on the spectrum. I don't mean like me on, my, on the spectrum. I mean like uh, where, <laughs> yeah. the, where the patient is. Uh, and and if, they're on a, if they're very low risk and I say, you know, uh, you know, Ms. Garcia, Mr. Jones, thank God you still have enough sensation to protect yourself, but you know what you want. So what I want you to do every day is to look at your feet, just like you comb your hair, you brush your teeth. Uh, and, and they'll say, well, what do I look for? Well, Mr. Mr. Jones, uh, you'll, uh, you'll know what to look for because you're looking at it every day. If it's something different than it was yesterday, you're going to call. And then we, of course, give them uh, our, you know, we, we don't have a, a a foot hotline. We have a hot foot line that they can call twenty four seven if there's a problem. So, uh, and uh, and so that's that's and then uh, uh, and then uh, so that's how we engage uh, patients early on, and we take them through this sort of thing uh, early on. If someone's already, if someone has neuropathy, and of course we have to really be, we have to engage them uh, much more uh, uh, closely, of course, and we have to tell them that the likelihood of them getting a wound is much higher. But then for the patient that has a wound or that that's just, and I, you know, we do this every day, really importantly. And I'd say this to Kylie, you know, when someone's healed a wound, um, we say, look, when you've healed the wound, you know, you're not healed. You're in remission. remission. And, uh, um, it is not only common for recurrence to happen. Um, it is likely, uh, someone after healing a diabetic foot ulcer, um, 40%, will have a recurrence in one year, about two-thirds at three, two-thirds to three-quarters at five, and even more out to 10 years. People live out to 10 years, uh, God willing. So those folks, you know, are, are we use the term remission, and we say to them, this is like cancer. And then what you see to them when you talk about that, and you know, you can use the C word at various times, and you'll watch their body language, and they kind of, you know, they kind of, uh, you know, stiffen up a little and they get, it's just, and that gets their attention. Um, and it's the same with, uh, you know, if you're talking to any, to another clinician, uh, it'll get their attention too. But I mean, you can make a really good case that these problems 
are common, complicated, costly, like cancer. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a, it's terrible to compare one terrible thing to another, but it's, it's an academic exercise. It's, it's, I mean, I think you can make a pretty good, pretty good case uh, for these things. And, and when you tell this to people, they seem to get it. They say, yeah, cancer, remission. And so this, instead of telling them that they're healed, uh, it, it, when they're healed, you know, something, they check something off and then it immediately becomes 11th on their 10 most important things to do. Whereas if you tell them they're in remission and they're going to get a problem in the future, maybe it's ninth on their 10 most important things to do or 10th instead of 11th. And so it's there and, and they know it and they get it. And that, if you're asking kinds of little tips, I would offer that. And then if you talk to them about a callus, like even before they get a wound or after they get a wound, if you want to use a, as, as an analogy, you know, a callus, if a diabetic foot's a little like cancer, I often will tell people, you know, clinicians and patients alike, that a callus is a little like a breast lump. You know, it's, it's a coming event. And, and, and you know, when, you, when you're paring that down for the patient, they, they understand that. And they understand that underneath that callus might be a wound. And, and, and you're trying to uncover that. Uh, in order to prevent an abscess from happening. So these are the things that are really, really important. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't do a good job of just giving one thing. Uh, <laughs> I gave a few things there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's a few things for one thing. It really depends on where that patient is. Great, great question. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Dan. I think the, the case of remission analogy is brilliant. Sorry? Sorry, Ian? While we're talking about, while we're talking about ulcers and, and yeah. you know, how they occur, you two guys were in Italy uh, speaking at a conference recently, and as you, as you, I'm sure you know because you heard Craig speak. In the world of sports medicine and injury, the hot topic at the moment is how we manage load. Yeah. So that uh, if we spike, if we spike our load, if we suddenly apply a load to the body, it's not yet, it doesn't yet have the capacity to deal with. Yeah. We're far more likely to get injured. And during this conference, you tweeted out um, something along the lines of the diabetic foot ulcers equals. Um, Problem in load management or something, which training kind of load error. <laughs> training load error. Training <laughs> load error. Can yeah. you two, can you remind me of the story behind that, Craig? What, what, what happened? Well, no, yeah, just, actually, this is so. This is Craig's. Uh, Craig's. This is Craig's idea. We were talking about it at breakfast, and then and then he uh, and then he later talked about it, and it's exceedingly clever. Go to it, man. No, I just I I think what struck me is I gave a presentation on load management in overuse injuries, and the definition of an overuse injury is when the cumulative load exceeds what the tissues can take, and that's exactly what a diabetic foot ulcer is. Um, and, I, and I think the hot topic in in, in sort of well overuse injury, sports injuries, it spikes in their training load, and it just occurred to me that, that that's what that's what's happening in these diabetic foot ulcers. They're sedentary people; they get their pension, they go out for the day and present two weeks later with an ulcer forgotten of that so, high level of activity two weeks prior. So that and, was really the, and Craig, yeah. And Craig, to that point, I mean, yeah. we published on this years and years ago, uh, I think 2003, maybe I, I as I recall, it, it was a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and where we, where we looked at activity patterns of patients uh, throughout over a very long period of time, the people that ulcerated or re-ulcerated had, as Craig said, what Craig described, very, you know, really in a clever way. As a training load error, people had pulses of activity that mm. seemed to predate that ulcer. So they might go out to the shops uh, and take two or three times more activity 
in 90 minutes or an hour or two than they would normally take in an entire day or an entire two or three days. Um, that area gets to be the, the, the area at highest at, at risk for stress gets stressed, inflamed, and ultimately ultimately turns into a blister and then a, then a wound uh, or a callus inflammation blister and wound. And there you are. That's why we can, that's why we use thermometers and thermometry uh, to detect this because it's a surrogate marker for inflammation. And you look for these sort of asymmetries. And that's why that, that has been relatively effective in identifying many of these problems before they start. Yeah, I think the, the exciting thing for me about that work you did was the time frame between that spike in their activity and the clinical presentation gave a window for yeah. intervention to prevent it. Yeah, I well, no idea, there you are. I have, I have no idea yeah. what that intervention should or could be, but there was a window yeah. there. Um, now, whether that process could be halted. Um, so, so, yeah, some of the latest you know, data on thermometry uh, seem to suggest, uh, it, it, it sort of mirrors some of the work that we did back in the 90s with thermometry, but it seems to suggest now that um, if you're looking at things and measuring them well, you may not, you may not just have hours to act, you may actually have, in some cases, days to weeks to act uh, before a problem actually starts. In some cases, not in every case, obviously, if someone's super active, it depends on the spike, really, um, and really the area under the curve, most likely, if you will. Yeah. But it's it was that you? That was you for once, Greg. That's yeah. not is that is that my operating room? Are they trying to bother you now too? No, yeah, it's, actually, it's actually a news alert from the Washington Post, but I'll talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> yes, it, it's uh, there. We are. Uh, the uh, but uh, the, uh, the, uh, more on that later. Uh, the, the, there's plenty happening in the news cycle. Uh, down the feet, uh, but but I think, like I said, I think in some cases you do have a lot of time, but I think it, uh, you do have more time than we thought, maybe a d- hours to weeks, I should say days to weeks, mm-hmm. uh, for the work-a-day problem, but for the super high spike, probably not, and I think this is where measuring these things, activity and inflammation, mm-hmm. uh, actual pressure itself, merging those and measuring them over a long period of time uh, are, are going to really become more and more important now. And we've been seeing it now over the years, but it's getting more and more important. And as we're able to now do this inexpensively, it's a super exciting time. Well, thanks, though. We're, all, we're almost out of time, and there's a whole lot more questions here, so we might have to try and answer them on, on Facebook. But m- maybe a question to end with would be, where are we going next with all of this? What's, the next, what's on the horizon? Uh, yeah, short to medium term. So, for these kinds of well, issues. well, look, well, there's there's so many things, but I, I, uh, um, I really think the horizon for so much of this is kind of what we were just talking about. I sometimes the best surgery, even though I was just in surgery, I think sometimes the best surgery is the one we never had to do, um, and uh, and I and so I think the taking all of the care that we're doing right now and identifying these acute on chronic problems in these chronic diseases, the, the kind of apex of them that we're talking about is diabetes and the lower extremity and diabetes, but, but shifting all this stuff to the home and into the community is where we're going. And we've been going there inexorably for 20 something years. And I've been saying this for, for years and years, but boy, I'll tell you home and community 
and monitoring people and having people monitoring themselves is where it's at. And it is, I was convinced of that 25 years ago, and I am even more convinced of it as I enter into my dotage uh, now. So this is a, 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 it's really, really exciting. And not just external sensors, but internal implanted sensors. And you know, there's all kinds of stuff that we and other groups are doing. And it's an exciting time to be a tow mechanic in this, in this area right around now. Mm. Yeah. So you got anything? Frank, can I ask one more question? Sure, before yeah. We go? yeah. One more. My, a very good friend of mine, a uh, great and colleague, Ganesh, would, ne- would never forgive me if I didn't mention this. When we asked on one of the groups for some questions for you, uh, Simon Spooner said, we have to ask you about the time you met Michael Jackson at Neverland before it was Neverland. <laughs> I, and now, I know my, my, my good friend Ganesh is the biggest Michael Jackson fan I know, so I've got to, I've got to, I've got to ask on his behalf. Are you allowed to tell us this story? Well, well the, story, the story is... It, would would take more time. It's a great and it's a fun, wonderful. <laughs> would take much more time than this. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, uh, that uh, that, that uh, uh, was uh, the apex of my entire life, uh, and that was uh, thirty uh, plus years ago. Uh, but uh, that uh, that is for that whole story. Uh, not only Michael Jackson, but someone, uh, if I may say, uh, that he bought Northern songs from. Uh, well, uh, that, that was a, uh, uh, a great time a long time ago. Next time I see Simon, I'll, uh, over a, uh, a beer or a cider or just some coffee. Uh, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. <laughs> okay, great. Well, th- thanks so much, Perfect. David. It's been great. I know, I know we obviously know how busy you are. So, so thanks for giving this, this, this hour. Um, thanks Ian and, um, David, I'll see you in November. <laughs> Hey man, it's a date in Niagara Falls, yeah. and uh, and uh, if not in DefCon before that, so there we go, hey. you guys. Okay, you well, all take care. Thanks, David. Hey, this was a total pleasure, you guys. Onward and upward, and let's make a difference. I I can just keep on keeping on. It's just, sure. it's, just it's just a great time <laughs> to be doing what you're doing, and and uh, just good on both of you. <laughs>